0: If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to grab it. We're going to be in uh, Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 12. Uh, as you see, we have, we have turned a new chapter, um, but it's not necessarily we've turned a new conversation because what you'll see is that uh, Jesus is yet again kind of on the offense with the religious establishment. So Mark chapter 12, uh, I hope you guys are, are well this morning. Um, you alive? You good? Okay, three of you are. There will probably be one left by the time I'm done. Um, if you don't own a Bible, we have some paperback copies out in the lobby. Uh, please take one of those. That's our gift uh, to you. Otherwise, the, the scriptures will be on the screen behind me. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him On the head and treated him shamefully, and he sent another and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one another, a beloved son. Finally, he sent to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance. Will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out in the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Jesus asked. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? From Psalm says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against him. So they left him and went away. Now, that was a lot of killing and stoning and raided our imagery. And with that, let us pray and ask God to help us. Father, again, we come to you seeking that you would open our eyes give us hearts to receive, transform our minds this morning, but most importantly, transform our hearts, that we would leave this room and say, as the scripture says, look what the Lord is doing. It is marvelous in our eyes, and we pray that you would be mighty to save. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now there is one phrase uh, in this that is kind of the key to this whole parable uh, in our understanding of what is happening here. One phrase at the end of the reading that we had, and it's in verse 12, and I think uh, for us, it's, it, it will help us apply this particular parable uh, for us today in you know 2023, some 2,000 years after Christ speaks these words. And that phrase to which I'm referring to, it's found there towards the end For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Now, here's the question that we've got to make sure we're all in the same framework. Who is the them? That's the question. And if you remember, Jesus is is addressing them at the end of last week, right? At the end of chapter 11, the the them then is the religious establishment. It is the religious establishment overlords of the Jewish people. It is the the Sadducees, the Pharisees, as we notice in chapter 11, verse 18, and the chief priest and the scribes heard and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished of his teaching. And so Jesus is giving an indictment on them, and the them is this religious Leaders is this religious establishment. Now you got to understand what's happening here because, as we know, this is tucked in the middle of Passion Week, right? Passion Holy Week, right? This is likely on the Wednesday, so this is likely on the day before he is in the upper room with his disciples. So he's so so Jesus had come into Jerusalem with an incredible self confidence. He's got this kind of understanding because if you remember, we saw how Jesus arrived in Jerusalem. He arrived on the donkey and the people began to sing his praises, Hosanna in the highest. And, and so you've got to understand for them, the religious leaders, they were a little ticked off at of this. Well, why didn't we get this type of entry? Why didn't we get this type of procession? And so this is kind of all making sense now. Jesus has come through the temple, and he's receiving the benefits of the praise of the people. And after this, Jesus curses a fig tree, and that's going to be important in just a moment. Jesus goes through the temple. He looks around in the temple, and he's not really uh, happy about what's going on, and he takes a whip, and he turns tables, and he gets a little bit irritated at what's happening. And, 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 And the people here... They, they, are, they, they, are, they are interested in, in, in one sense, but in the other sense, they're not really happy with this character. They're not happy with the procession that's taken place for Jesus. And so they think they're going to trap Jesus in a corner, question him in his authority. And this is, again, all about the question of authority. And they go to Jesus with those that question last week. You remember that? They're they're talking about, on whose authority do you come? Why do you say you got this authority? And Jesus basically pits them in a corner to where they either have to answer the question with an affirmation of his deity and him being the Messiah, or... You know, or they, they, or they, because they run the risk of if they don't go with what the crowd is saying, then the crowd will turn against them. And so think about this, if I can just recap for just a moment. If the religious leaders, and, and they see it, they know it, right? They're, they're not, they're, they've caught on to who Jesus is. But if they communicate and if they say with their mouths, okay, so you are the Lord, you are the Messiah, Uh, realize what they have to do so in that moment they have to lay aside their authority and say then then we have no authority because to you belongs all the authority and if they do that then what are the consequences to it well Friday never comes what was Friday the crucifixion of Christ And so they are still bent in, you know, them having this authority, and 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 who do you think you are? And so and 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 they understand, they realize who they are in the presence of, and and they're just like, well, we don't know whose authority, we we don't know who this Messiah is, and they're lying in Jesus's face. And so Jesus then turns to them again with this parable about the tenants in a vineyard, and so he he's, he's. talking to them about this. And in a sense, it's allegorical, but in another sense, it's scriptural about what is happening in this parable. So let us uh, let me just kind of break it out. Let me talk about this parable and, and you're going to have to stay with me because it's going to seem like I'm just giving you like just waterboarding you with information. And I, I hate using that term, but that's the only way I can think of it. And so I just need you to sit tight, hang with me for just a minute because there's a lot of context in order for us to understand really the weight of what Jesus is doing. We've got to understand really this kind of context of what's happening in this parable. And so it may be strange for us, you know, upon first reading this because, it, you know, it just seems like we're so far removed from the thought of vineyards and tenants and, you know, owning properties because, because in Utah, you're only allowed to own like 1.005 fourth of an acre, right? So, so the thought, unless you live out in Enoch, you can have whatever kind of land you want, And and so the thought of all of these ideas, it seems like a little foreign to some of us. But for the people at the time, they were very familiar about what Jesus was insinuating and implying here. Let me talk about this uh, parable. Historians, what they're going to teach us about this, they tell us that large tracts of land, both in Judea and and Galilee uh, were owned by foreigners so that um, there were these foreign landowners. They were absentee from the land that they owned, and they would lease it out their property to people, okay? In this instance, and in this parable that Jesus is talking about, they would lease out their vineyard to tenants who would agree then, in turn, provide for them a sort of payment that was the produce of the land. Now, what, what we know, apparently, I don't know if this is true of today, but in, in, in this ancient Israel time, it would take up to four years for a vineyard to be earthed properly in order that it would produce some type of significant fruit. Now, I, I denote that for my retirement, so that I start four years before I retire on my wine vineyard. Don't judge me. This is the lifestyle I will live. And you could scoff at me now, but wait till we're old, all right? And I'll have the fine wine of the land. But I guess I can't do that in Utah. In verse 2, this will, you'll, you'll hear this phrase, when the season came. And so he's talking about the, the, the right rights they've, they've tilled the ground. They've, they've earthed the ground where it's appropriate. And finally, to where they'll start seeing some type of significant fruit uh, that will bear in the land. That's why in, in this verse 2, when the season came, he sent A servant. Now, at the time when the product would be available, and in that season, the owner then sends a servant to have for him what is required by, I guess, what we could say, a contract. So they leased out the land. the 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 people who are the the ones who are leasing the land, they have this contract where they're going to pay the owner what is rightfully due to them. But in this parable, notice what happens. The owner sends out uh, the owner sends out the the, the people who are going to gather what is rightfully theirs. And what do the what happens? It seems like a scene out of a Netflix movie. Well, they they see the Joker coming to take what is rightfully his, and they beat him. This is this is not this is interesting now respectfully, this is, this is what's happened, but there's also a sort of biblical context for what's happening. And I don't want to belabor this, but I'm going to belabor it for just a moment more. In Isaiah chapter 5, I believe, we see that uh, if you turn to chapter 5 of Isaiah verse 7, you see that the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Of Israel. So the picture is becoming very clear for us then. Because these fellows know their Bible. They they understand the scriptures. They're able to realize very quickly what Jesus is doing here, that he's not just telling a story. He's indicting them and he, he's, he's ushering in some type of indictment on their souls to where they have had enough time to understand who he is. And since, not in a failure to see him for who he is, but in rebellion for them to see whom, for who he is, their time has come to an end. He knows that they're opposed to him. Jesus smells blood and murder in the air. He knows what is right before him in just a couple of days from Wednesday. And he knows the hearts of these cowards. And so he tells this story and he's looking at these people in their faces. And so it's obvious for us is becoming obvious to them. And then what about the servants in this parable depict the way in which God's prophets were opposed and how they were ill-treated. In verse 5, you see, and he sent another, and they killed him. And then notice the phrase, and so with many others. So with many others, some they beat, some they killed. And so he's saying to these fellows, listen, you know the history of Israel. You know what has happened, that God throughout time has sent prophets as a sort of warning to you in all that the people of God have done have rejected the message of God. And what have they done to the people of God who have brought the message of God? Well they've beat them. They they've they've revolted against them. And and here we have this interesting complexity to the story. And then the the climax of this parable comes when you notice there, then the tenants said to one another, there is the heir. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. We notice that phrase, he says, he still had one more, he still had one more in the pocket that he was going to send out. It was the beloved son. A beloved son. Where have we heard this image or this, this same language of beloved son? Well, you remember when Jesus was baptized, the spirit of God descended and the voice of God said, behold, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And if you know, on another occasion when this happened, when, when the transfiguration is taking place, the voice of the Lord comes out yet again. And he says, my beloved son, listen to what he says. And so this language would not uh, be, be kind of, uh, they would understand what's happening here. Again, he's using this same language that's been used in this parable. And I can't imagine how uncomfortable it was for these religious leaders to be in this kind of back in the corner and Jesus addressing them and basically indicting them and basically telling them your time has come to an end. Could you imagine just being that guy? And it's with that understanding of the parable we can go in just a little bit further with this. And so let me, let me show you this main point of this parable, and then I've got a little bit of application work to do that, that I think would be uh, wise upon our ears to listen to. Look at verse number nine. Jesus says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And that's the question. That's the big point that Jesus is drawing out in this parable. What is the owner of the vineyard going to do about all you jokers who have been rejecting, killing, beating, murdering? What, 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 what do you expect the owner to do? What is the owner going to do? And he says, I'll tell you what the owner of the vineyard is going to do. He will come and he will destroy the tenants and he will give the vineyard to someone else. Now, I don't know which is worse. I've got an assumption that I'll unleash. There's an indictment there it says I'm going to destroy <laughs> I'm going to destroy the tenants. Now, remember context about chapter 11 through end of 13 is set within the framework of the temple being destroyed. So, if I were to categorize chapter 11 through the end of 13, it's all about the judgment of God. And so Jesus is yet again giving the listener, the one who would have ears, a little bit of insight on what he's about to do to the religious establishment of the day that he's about to destroy them. But I don't think that's the worst part. What is the worst part for these religious leaders? That he's going to give the vineyard to someone else. Now, just think about that for just a second, because what does that imply? That that implies that the promise of the Messiah is not just for one people group, but the vineyard of the Lord, the vineyard of the kingdom of God will be given out to anyone who would believe. Now, do you see the promise and do you see the hope in this? Now, this is more just about a parable where Jesus goes in like ninja mode and just takes these jokers out, right? He says, I'm going on offense and I'll take every single one of you out. But there is a broader message here that is implying to us a couple of things. One is, can it ever be too late for someone to receive Christ? And then in another sense That anyone can receive Christ because the vineyard doesn't belong to one people. The vineyard belongs to anyone who would come to Christ. And that is the framework of this parable that Christ gives to these people. Seems like it's making a bit of a sense now. Now, what does all this mean? If I were to just kind of speed this up just for a moment, this, this means that, that what God is doing is he is unfolding the story of redemption for everyone who would come to him and believe in Jesus, the Messiah, in Jesus as God. But for those who reject him, there's a time for you that there will not be another chance for you to see Christ for who he really is. Now, if you noticed here in, in, in what's, what um, Jesus is referencing, he's referencing the psalm. Someone else references this also, and his name is Peter. And we read this earlier between Psalm and two, two and three, and we read from First uh, Peter chapter two, where he's talking about the stum- this is a stone of stumbling. This is a rock of offense. Peter's writing to believers who are scattered around the world in his day, both from a Jewish and Gentile perspective. And he talks about the stone that the builders reject has become the stumbling block. Because they're offended by Jesus. Who is the stumbling block? Jesus, who, if I may, who in culture is always... The one offending. Jesus. Buddha don't offend nobody, do we? Come on, does he? No, he don't offend nobody. But Muhammad does not offend anyone. I mean, you, you Krishna, whoever, these, these religious leaders, they don't offend anyone. Do you want to know why they don't offend anyone? Because they do not call you to deny yourself and follow them. And the reason why Jesus offends so many people is because Jesus comes with the authority and he says to you and he says to me that he is the only way. He is the truth. He is the life. That if you want to get to the Father, you can't go through Buddha. you got to go through Jesus. That's why this is so offensive. That's why Jesus is the stumbling block that people cannot get over. Because he says he is the way, the truth, and the life. Because he says that he is the resurrection and that he is the only one that can open our blinded eyes and and call to our dead selves. Because he is the incarnate God. Because he, at his name, Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's why he is the stumbling block, because that offends our culture in saying and suggesting that there's only one way to heaven. And it ain't about being good. And it ain't about your path and your path and this truth and that truth. And for, these, and for this religious establishment, they just couldn't take it, could they? And what happened to the religious establishment is what happens to our culture today. That the Messiah, Jesus Christ, has become a stumbling block for the nation because of what he calls us to do. Because his call is for us to die to ourselves and follow him. That's not Muhammad's call. That's not Krishna's call. That's not, you know, you know insert the, the blank because their call is one of just being good and we'll all find our ways back to heaven. What a damning message. And the reason why Jesus Christ is that stumbling block because of what he calls us into. And for those who do call Christ their Lord, look what he says, you're a chosen race. That's Old Testament. Your royal priesthood, that's a Jewish picture. Your holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's Genesis 12. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had never received mercy, now you have received mercy. Mercy And unless the wooings and the warnings of God's words soften your heart and bring you to repentance, then the wooing of God's heart will harden your heart. So what he's saying is, I've rejected those who stumble over Jesus. What he's not saying is that he's rejected the Jews. What he's saying? is I've just rejected those who stumble over Jesus. Now I want to give a little afterthought and maybe a way of application and I'll be done. He's quoting there from Psalm 118. And these guys, they know Scripture. They know Scripture as well as anyone. And he said to them, "Have you not read Scripture, of course they have it's rhetorical. What's he saying? You are rejecting Jesus. The stone was absolutely crucial in the construction of the temple. And Jesus says, the one you are denying, the one you are despising, the one you are rejected is the one whom everything holds together. Now the son, Jesus, he is the stone. The one who owns the vineyard is God, and the vineyard is the people, Israel. They were, they, and they humiliated the tenants. They humiliated uh, the messengers, rather. They killed the prophets. They killed the son. And Jesus looks at them, and he tells them, I tell you the truth. It's too late for you. Can it ever be, by way of application, if I may, can it ever be too late? And that's a question you have to wrestle with. Can it ever be too late? And I, and I think of what's happening in our nation. Can it ever be too late for a nation to where God will eventually unleash his wrath on a nation? Well, Acts chapter 14 says, God says he allows the nation to go their own way. Terrifying, isn't it? And here's the most terrifying part about it that I believe we're in. I call it, we live in a Romans chapter one world. You're sensible. You can read it on your own time. Just one verse when it says, God gave them over to the depravity of their thinking, or I believe the, 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 the way it's mentioned there is he gave them to a reprobate mind. They were engulfed in sexual immorality, a nation that would say what is good is actually bad, and what is bad is really good. Jesus is unleashing judgment upon the nation of Israel because of their rejection of who he is. And anytime you see a nation who goes their way and says that our way is better, we'll celebrate evil and we'll legislate the right things out. Then you know that a nation is about to be under the wrath of God. So Jesus gives us two options here, and he says to them, you know, you, you've, you've rejected, in your heart you've rejected, and out of your rejection is a hardened heart, but there's a way out. But for those who do not reject, there are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, that the vineyards will also be given to them. Now, what do we do, right, in a, in, a, in a culture, in a nation that celebrates evil, in a nation that turns unrighteous laws into legislative matters in acts? What do you do? Is that what we're seeing? Well, I'll tell you that's what we're seeing. And you see it in the guise of gender-affirming care legislation. Where we in other words, you know, it's we want to make it sound really nice and pretty. But what it is is the physical castration of little children. And we want to also make abortion look good. And so so they were losing the argument with, you know, the abortion argument. Now all of a sudden it's no longer called abortion. What is it called? Reproductive health care which is the presupposition that the baby inside the belly growing is a disease, is a virus. And so what we'll do is, is we'll provide a pill that they've been providing, methopressinstone, which will kill the baby, in which our judges were too coward to act on this past week. That would have stopped the pill from murdering more people and in fact if I, I have to live in the news cycle y'all pray for me I probably need therapy if you if you watch the news closely the UN came out with sort of a decree and a recommendation to nations that would delegalize, decriminalize children who have sex with adults let me ask you a question a nation, that continues to say, we are God, we rule, we are the authority, well, it won't be too far long until that nation falls under the judgment and wrath of God. But, because there's always a big but, there will always be a remnant of people but that remnant of people cannot be cowards. That remnant of people cannot allow this evil and this wickedness to infiltrate their theology. Because what's been happening is we get more theology out of the White House and, and out of legislative halls. And so we're just like, okay, we'll just buy into that because they're saying it. And our proper theology is now coming from the word of God. So we have two options. We, as a children of God, have to guard. Have to, as, as, as Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11 would tell us, is to stand and to speak boldly about the evil that is happening and allow the light of Christ to infiltrate the darkness, Matthew's paraphrase. And then we, we, we see a spring of hope out of this parable where Christ is giving this interesting indictment on a nation, but then he gives a way out. That if you just confess, that if you just see Christ for who he really is, then when you stand before him, the great judge will not see you, but he will see the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed upon you. Can you escape the wrath of God? Yeah. The most terrifying verse is Romans 1 when it says, God turned them over to the depravity of their thinking. When God exposes you in your sin, it is his grace, not his judgment. But when God turns you over to the depravity of your thinking, that is the judgment of God because you have rejected him for so long and in your rejection, your heart has hardened and God has lifted his hands off and said, fine, do it your way. May we have ears to hear and a heart to receive.